I was thinking this morning as I, I was thinking in connection with this message that it's amazing how light can really alter our perception. I don't know if any of you have, have seen something. Maybe you're driving somewhere at night and then when morning breaks you go, wow, I didn't know this was so beautiful or maybe I didn't know this was so run down. Uh, the presence of light can really reveal what is real. And that same uh, principle can do wonders as to help us understand spiritual reality and biblical truth. When you become a Christian, you start to walk with Christ and you inevitably start to recognize sin in your own life that maybe you have never seen before. And as the Word of God and the Spirit of God illuminate your understanding about the holiness of God, in the presence of this unapproachable light, you, st- you start to see the corresponding darkness in your own soul in such a way that maybe you have never seen before. And that's a very, a very, very important fact because as people walk with Christ and start to see the sin and then get convicted of the sin in their life, it's easy to ask that question, if I was saved, I wouldn't be seeing all this remaining sin. You start to question the reality of your own salvation, but that's a wrong conclusion to draw. You should expect to see the sin in your life as the light of God's Word reveals it to you. You should expect to see, as you are drawing closer in your union with Christ, the remaining sin that is still there. In fact, in our text for this morning, it tells us that you have to recognize the reality and embrace that reality rather than run from it. It's not a ground for you questioning your salvation as as long as you're not in habitual sin, just constantly desiring sin. Seeing sin in your life is what should happen as we grow in Christ. But why is it then that there seems to be so many that tell you that either you aren't sin a sinner anymore, or they say you are under the covenant of grace and therefore sin doesn't matter. Go ahead and sin. And so what happens is we seem to see more hypocrisy and counterfeiters and showmen in religion, probably more this era than any other, where there seems to be these people that don't want to honestly look at what God's Word says, and they don't want to honestly look at the things of God. You know, God knows all things. He looks on the heart of man. Man looks on the outward countenance, but God looks at the heart. All things are naked and open before Him. And God is not deceived. God is not mocked. We can fool people and we can deceive people, but we cannot fool God. The problem is we still can fool ourselves. 
confessing our sins as believer believers is a very difficult subject and it gets into the most intimate parts of our lives and our conscience before God. It gets into our relationship with others as well. It's hard for a sinner to say, I have sinned. But I think it's increasingly harder for believers to say, I have sinned. As believers, we find ourselves wanting to say, well, I apologize if what I said hurt you. Or I apologize if what I said was harsh. Folks, that's not true confession of sin. That's that's the feeble attempt of trying to whitewash your sin. Confessing sins doesn't have the ifs. We insert the ifs when we're trying to justify ourselves. And, and we actually just come up short of true confession of the Word of God. When we say to each other as believers, I have sinned and I want to repent of that sin, it shouldn't be with just empty words just so we can see, have people look at us in a better light. It should be a sincere attempt to get the record straight, first of all with God and then with each other. James 5.16 exhorts all believers to confess our sins to each other. And the word that, that James used, it's uh, exilemageo. And it means to publicly acknowledge our sins to each other so that we can pray for each other, so that we can be healed of this malady. It means to openly and freely acknowledge that we are sinners, and that we have sinned. But like I said, we need to first get it right with God. Remember what David said. He says, first, it was against him. It was against God, against his glory. And then in Romans 3.23, it says, then we need to get it right with each other. The success of mutual confession means two humble hearts are connecting before God and connecting with each other. Two believers not only want to be cleansed by God, but they want to be reconciled with each other. I remember reading a story of a newspaper editor. His name was William Bevermark, and he wrote a column in a London newspaper. And when he wrote that Uh, one of his editorials, he spoke evil of a member of parliament. And it so happened that he met this man that he spoke evil of in the club washroom. So Bevermark, taken back and embarrassed by this chance encounter, said, my dear chap, I've been thinking it over. I was wrong to say what I said about you in the paper, and I apologize. Edward Heath was the man that he talked about, and he said, very well. But next time, I wish that you would insult me in the washroom and apologize to me in the paper. You see, mutual, successful confession is only possible when believers keep a short account with God. 
confessing first all of our sins to Him so that we obey the Holy Spirit and then confessing to our brothers or sisters, our husbands or our wives, our children or our parents so that we do it in a humble manner without demeaning forgiveness, just trying to get that, yeah, I forgive you. Too many times that's what we want. But we've been trained well as children, right? Mom takes Johnny by the ear. Now, Johnny, you say you're sorry to your sister. For parents and grandparents, don't do that to your kids. Because what you have just done is you got this to where Johnny, little viper in a diaper, he's ending up going, oh, I feel justified now that I said sorry. And so his justification is in something that he didn't want to do. He didn't want to say, I'm sorry. He was made to feel to feel like he had to say it. So don't do that. Try to work with your children to get them to understand what the sin is. Get them to try to understand that they need to go and apologize and ask for, for forgiveness. But I think that whole scenario ends up in the church as well. A lot of people go, well, you know, sin, that's, that's really a private issue. It's something that should be between that person and God. You can't back that up with Scripture. Matthew 18 talks all about that. If you... If a brother has offended you, go to him alone. Do you know what the purpose always is? Reconciliation. Always. You go with the purpose of reconciling. And if he doesn't listen, take two or three with you. And if he still doesn't listen, take him before the church. Always with the purpose of reconciliation. The question we should be asking is not, do church leaders have the duty and responsibility to warn the wicked because the Bible says that? Yes, we should. But the real question is how do we identify people who are deceived into thinking that they are saved when maybe they are lost? Or those who are saved who feel hopeless. There's a tension there. And a pastor needs to feel that tension, needs to understand that there will be those people who think they are saved and they're not, and there will be those people who are saved and don't think they are because they have this weight of hopelessness. And so I hope this morning I can shed a little light on that from God's Word. So if you would please turn to our text for this morning. It's found in 1 John chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. First John chapter 1, starting with verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar 
and his word is not in us. Here, the Apostle John continues his sequence of hypothetical statements, the if-we statements. In other words, if we say X and do Y. All three of these statements we say are good things in some sense, but John shows that they're totally wrong in the context of a genuine Christian life. Instead of speaking of three boasts, that I have fellowship with him, I have no sin, I have not sinned, John demands that we undertake and perform three actions. Walking in light, confessing our sins, and seeking to help, uh, seeking the help of the advocate that we have in Christ. There were in John's time some proud, arrogant, ignorant, blind, deluded wretches who said that they had cleansed their heart from all evil and that perfection now dwelt in them and there was no sin to be found. Now some of these people were Pharisees. They were completely ignorant of the requirements of God's holy law and thoroughly unacquainted with the depth of man's fall. Others were just dry doctrinalists who could speak much of Christ, but know nothing of the working of depravity in their own nature, overlooking the corrupt fountain, as it were, within. And because they read that the, of the church's perfection in Christ, they claimed sinless perfection to themselves. But any so-called Christian who claims to have reached a higher spiritual plane where sin is no longer existent in their lives completely misunderstands their condition and the Spirit's work of progressive sanctification. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This claim of sinless perfection ignores the teaching of Christ. He taught that sin was in was within everyone. If you would just keep your finger in first John, but please turn to Mark chapter seven. Mark chapter seven and verses twenty one through twenty three. Here starting with verse twenty one. Jesus said For within, from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murderers, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile. A man. It's from within. This statement of holy perfection ignores what we just read. The total depravity of man. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, there is none righteous. And, you know, Paul could have stopped. There's none righteous. And stopped there. But he didn't. He says, no, not one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Folks, Jesus was the only human being ever to claim he was without sin. And so we read in verse 8 of our text, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Natural man, man in his nature, whether he is profane or professing, knows nothing about the real character of sin. But do you know what God did? He put a witness within the human heart. It's the natural conscience. And where that conscience has not been seared, the conscience bears testimony against sin. But the hideous nature of sin, in its depth and subtlety, works and moves within the heart and within its cravings and its lusting to where the depth of sin cannot be known unless a person's heart has the light of the gospel. And their conscience then comes to life. There's a veil over man's heart by nature. A veil of ignorance and delusion, unbelief, self-deception. And as long as that veil remains and the purity of God remains unseen to natural man, they walk in the darkness. But when the Holy Spirit takes a man and, and begins His sovereign work of grace upon the soul, He begins to open up the astonished eyes of the sinner to the real nature of sin. And in all three of these verses, John starts out by saying, if we... Now it's amazing and somewhat distressing to me how loose people play with the we's in Scripture. Often, a Bible writer will say, we, and if what follows does not follow someone's theology... People will say, well, that's talking about non-Christians, so it doesn't apply to us. You know, pastors in general have tried to explain this way by having the pastors we. You know, this, so we don't, we don't uh, uh, offend anybody. You know, a pastor might get up and say, now we have to stop gossiping in this church. When he knows that most people aren't gossiping, there are some that are. What he means is you. You need to. But he's not going to say that. So he's going to soften it with we. And so that's what happens is, you know, we must do this. John uses some of this same terminology, but what he's trying to do is weed out those who might be within the church itself. He wants to say, you know, don't think you're on one side or the other. I want to sit there and, and, and try to get you to understand your true condition. So John says to those that say they have no sin, 
that they're deceived and the truth is not in them. The truth is not in refers to the state, uh, the state of darkness and the lack of conversion. Adam Clark in his commentary says, by supposing that we have no guilt, no sin, sinfulness, and consequently have no need for the blood of Christ as an atoning sacrifice, this is the most dreadful of all deceptions as it leaves the soul under all guilt and pollution of sin, exposed to hell and utterly unfit for heaven. End quote. And then the great Bible commentator John Gill says, if it is a plain case, the truth of grace is not in such persons. For if there was real work of God upon their souls, they would know and discern the plague of their own hearts, the impurity of their own nature, and the imperfection of their obedience. Nor is the word of truth in them, for if they had entrance into them and worked effectually in them, they would, in the light of its discovery, much sin and iniquity in them. And indeed, there is no principle of truth, no veracity in them. There is no sincerity or ingenuity in them. They do not speak honestly and upright, but contrary to the dictates of their own conscience, end quote. So continuing with verse 9, we come to a very controversial verse, and most people don't give it much doctrinal or theological thought. They, they're sort of flat-footed with it. But I hope to show you this morning that the Christian deals with sin not be, by pretending that he doesn't have any, but by confessing that he does. But by confessing, that does not justify us. And so again, if we look at verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To actually deal with sin is to approach it in the way that John just specifies it here. To confess that word confess, and I've, I've mentioned this numerous, numerous times, is the word homologeo. And it literally means to speak the same. Homo means same. Legeo means speak. It means saying what God says about your sin. In other words, it means speaking the truth about your sin. I have no sin is emphatically not true. If you say, I haven't sinned, you just sinned. Which makes you a liar. And this is exactly what John is saying. If you have no sin, that's a lie. Instead, you need to speak truth about your sin. You must say, here's what I did. I did it. I was wrong. I was wrong. Father, you condemn this sin, and so do I. Now, what confession means is we are born with a, an aversion to confession. Confession means speak the same. We don't want to do that by nature. We want to hide our sin. Because we hate confession. 
We don't want to tell someone, yeah, this is what I did. But true confession requires that you say what God says. That your sin is evil, it's wrong, it's heinous, and it's your fault. I remember reading a story about a man who one night went to a a crusade and he went forward and told the counselor, I know I'm a Christian, but there's sin in my life and I need help. The counselor showed him this text that we're going through. He says, brother, confess your sins to God. And so the, the man began to pray. He said, Father, if we have done anything wrong, and the counselor said, stop it. Don't drag me into your sin. It's not if we, it's you need to get down to business with God. It's specifically about your sin and yours alone. And this way of confession is the biblical way. Dealing with our sin. This is how you and I ought to handle each and every sin in our life. Admit it to God. And then admit it to those who you sinned directly against. You see, you have two options when it comes to your sin. Deny it or confess it. Lie about it or be truthful about it. If sin is a reality in our lives, and it most definitely is, then you only have two options. Deny it or confess it. You can live as though it's not a reality. But folks, that's that's walking in the darkness. Or you can live as though everything God said about your sin is true. That's walking in light. If that's all this verse said, there probably wouldn't be a whole lot of controversy there. But confessing is the opposite of not having the truth. And so true confession means having the truth in you. Integrity, genuineness, right feelings, right beliefs, right thoughts, right actions, and the truth of Scripture. All that is embraced by your heart, and it's a dominant, controlling, defining factor of your life. There's a distinction drawn between those who are true believers and those who are not. The the false deny their sin. The true confess it. Isn't that just the, the gospel itself? Isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? At the heart of the glory of the gospel, the value of the gospel is that it provides complete forgiveness of all sin for the sinner who embraces the gospel. And the forgiveness that God provides for us is so comprehensive that it removes from the believer all defilement, all shame, all guilt, all punishment forever and replaces it with righteousness, security, and eternal reward. This is the gift of forgiveness. And folks, it's irrevocable. No one or no nothing can cause the forgiveness that that God granted to the believer to be taken away or rescinded. No one can talk God out of it, change his mind, 
or successfully bring up an accusation against the believer that would cause God to cancel that forgiveness. Folks, you cannot lose your salvation. But you must ask the question, am I saved? There are people who fall off and they stay off. They didn't lose their salvation. They were never saved to begin with. The consummate promise that we cling to is the foundation we find in Romans 8.1. There is now, there is therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are Christ, there is no condemnation for you. And then Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. God takes everything and works it for good to those who belong to Him. There is no condemnation. There is only good on the behalf of those who are in Christ. And God sees to it because that's how He planned it. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Whoever he chose in eternity past, he determines, would come to the very image of Christ in eternity future. Whomever he chooses, he brings to glory. Whoever he chooses to be in the image of Christ will realize that reality. And whom he predestined, he called And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. And that's because in the beginning, in eternity past, he chose us for salvation to be conformed to the image of his Son, and he will bring that realization in eternity future so that all he predestined are called to salvation. They're justified. And they are to be glorified. And if that's true, Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has so determined that our forgiveness is uh, irrevocable and not to be canceled, never to be removed, if that is true, that God is for us, who can successfully come against us? The gospel is preached with a promise of forgiveness, and that's exactly what the gospel does. It promises forgiveness to all who believe. And understand that walking in the light is not meriting grace, but it's a life lived out in confession of who God is and his work in your life. If you would please turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we'll look at verses 18 through 21. Starting with verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men loved 
darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they may have done, uh, been done in God. You see, when we walk in the light, we allow the light of God to expose our sin. But you know what he does? He purifies us. He exposes it and then works in us. And he does that not to give us glory, but to give him glory. That these works have been carried out in God they are the result of him purifying, the purifying power of God's light. Walking in the light is walking in sight of God's glory, walking, in, walking for God's glory. There's a, a 19th century preacher that I, I have read much of. His name is J.C. Philpot, And he says this about conversion and confession of sin. He says, the blessed spirit in his first dealings with the sinner's conscience does not open him up to the depth of the malady. He makes him indeed feel that the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. He discovers to him the purity of God, the breadth of spirit, the spiritual spirituality of law, and correspondingly a sense of iniquity in himself. He brings upon his conscience outward transgressions and lays upon it the guilt of those sins which are open to the eye and which are the more conspicuous branches that spring out of the deep roots. He not only shows him the huge, wide spreading branches of sin, but bids him to look down and see how deeply rooted the sin is in his very being. That sin is not an accident, a faint blot that may be soon washed out, a something on the surface like a skin disease that may be healed by a simple plaster or gentle ointment. He shows him that sin is seated in his very bones, that it is a deep-rooted malady that has taken possession of him, that he is a sinner to his very heart's core, that every thought, every word, every action of a man's whole being is one mass of sin, filthy and polluted. And if he attempts, as most awkward sinners attempt to do, to purify himself, to ease his guilt by lopping off just a few of the branches, if he attempts to wash himself clean from iniquity, the Spirit teaches him the meaning of Job's words in Job 9, 30 and 31. Though I wash myself with snow water and make my hands ever so clean, yet shall you plunge me in the ditch and my own clothes shall abhor me. Philpot continues, until at last God brings him to this spot that he is a sinner throughout. Yes, he is the chief of sinners, that every evil lodges in his heart and the seed of every crime dwells in his fallen nature. When a man is brought here, he is brought to the place 
of the stopping of the mouths. His own righteousness is effectually cut into pieces. His hope of salvation by works of the law are completely removed from under him. End quote. In other words, accept the truth about God and accept the truth about yourself. If you go through the motions of saying, yes, I sinned, yes, I did wrong, but those are not a true confession of the heart, it's not doing you any good. Luther had a great statement about this. He says, God does not forgive imaginary sin, nor does he save imaginary sinners. Isn't that a great quote? God does not forgive imaginary sin, nor does he save imaginary sinners. When you confess your guilt before God, and if you are just mouthing the words about your guilt but have no sorrow or brokenness or a real genuine belief that you are actually guilty, the truth is not in you, and you are not, uh, and at that point you are calling God a liar. Your, conf- your confession has to touch your whole being, including your affections. It actually has to be exactly what the prodigal son, when he came to his senses, said in Luke fifteen eighteen and 19. He says, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. I love what MacArthur says. He says that that parable is wrongly named. It's called the prodigal son. It should be called the loving father. It should be that this father ended up loving him when the son came back and said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's just like David when he confessed his sins in Psalm 32, 5, he said, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so if you look back at verse 9 of our text, John uses two words to describe God's position. He uses the words faithful and just. The word faithful is the Greek word pistos and it means God is worthy of trust. That He can be relied on. And then you see the word just, which is the Greek word dikaios. And it means it has to do with His righteousness and His justice. It's a legal or judicial word that it has to do with. It's in regard to uh, being consistent with punishing evil. Sin must be dealt with. It must be punished. And it must be administered according to the crime. And so what does verse 9 say that God's righteousness and justice do? It says, forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's where the, the hitch comes. Don't misunderstand this promise as mere words are the promise of a person's forgiveness. We are not saved through confessing our sins. We are saved by grace through faith. Confession is not the object by which we are saved. It is the vehicle or means in which God uses to bring us to His saving grace. 
If there is true repentance, the true confession of our sin, God uses that to bring us to his covenantal grace. And if you notice, it says he is faithful and just. In the Greek, do you know what it it actually reads? He is faithful in his justice. Meaning that we have already gone through repentance and faith. We've been brought into this special relationship whereby He has already paid the price for your sin through the atonement of Christ. And when I use that word atonement, I'm referring to Christ's death on the cross where He bore the wrath of God against our sin. He is our propitiation. Romans 3, 24 and 25 says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. His wrath was appeased because Christ was made a propitiation. It was at the cross that Christ made it possible for God to be favorably disposed toward His children. Because at the cross, where the barrier of sin was removed, where the penalty of sin was paid, so that Christ could treat us favorably in His sight, because Christ Himself reconciled us to God. That word propitiation is the word hilasterion. And it means to appease the wrath of God. See, confession in and of itself doesn't bring forgiveness of sin. Confession shows that there is a right relationship with Christ where forgiveness of sin has now been applied to the sinner. I like what MacArthur says about this. He says there are two kinds of forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness and or forensic forgiveness. The forgiveness that was purchased in full by the atonement of Christ rendered on our behalf. That kind of forgiveness frees us from the threat of eternal punishment, eternal condemnation. And that is why those who are in Christ Jesus are not under condemnation. It is the forgiveness of justification. But then... There's not just the judicial, there's the paternal forgiveness. This is granted by God, not as judge, but as father. He is still grieved when his, his children sin. Yes, we are justified, but he also wants us to be sanctified, to be conformed to the image of Christ. He is pleased with that justification. He is displeased with the breach of sanctification. The the forgiveness of justification takes care of the judicial guilt, but it does not eliminate fatherly displeasure. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin by justification, but we haven't been delivered from the presence and the consequence of sin. This is an ongoing process, and that's why we are always confessing and always being forgiven and being cleansed Your justification is fixed, and it's a settled reality. Your sanctification ebbs and flows depending upon how you deal with sin in your life, end quote. 
See, too many people read this verse and they think, well, God has to forgive me because I just confessed my sin regardless of their relationship to him. Our justification is not in confession, but in the sinless perfection and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Folks, when you were converted, you didn't just repent. You didn't just confess that you're a sinner. You were converted. And do you know what you became? You became a confessor. You became a repenter. And so now this is your nature. This is your practice. This is what you do. When that's your practice, when you've become a confessor, when you become a repenter, you go, this is what I desire. Because as a a child of God who loves the light and wants to walk in the light, there's a problem. I still have indwelling sin. It's getting less and less, but you know what? Once in a while I step into that darkness. A Christian isn't one who doesn't sin, but a Christian is one who views his sin in a radical way. He has a new nature. He hates that he likes sin. The sin that my flesh loves, I now hate. I hate the longing that I have And so he cries out like Paul, who said, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, when I, when will I get through this? When will I get rid of the old me? And so in verse 10, we read, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John's final argument is if we say we have not sinned. If this is the case, we make God a liar. Shows that we're not His. The denial of our own depravity is in such stark contradiction to what the Bible says. So much so, to assert that is to call God a liar and clearly reveals His Word is not in us which means we're not in the faith. Those who deny their sin are actually at war with God. And if you are saved, folks, your nature has been changed. If your nature has been changed, then you love God. You love the things of God. While it's true that you may not always be successful in doing what you know is right, saved people never want to sin. They never never desire to transgress. They don't want to displease their wonderful Lord. Saved people may do wrongdoing, but they're not trying to do wrong. That's the biggest difference between lost people and saved people. Saved people are certainly not perfectly sinless. Saved people can and do sin sometimes grievously. But saved people do not 
and cannot abide continually in sin once they are saved because their new nature won't allow them to. This is one of the proofs of our salvation that John actually gives us here. That we walk with God. We no longer walk with dark, in darkness. Lost people modify their behavior. They go, well, you know, I'm going to do this or that. But pretty soon, their nature is, is revealed. That they're still walking in darkness. If truth and righteousness are absent from a person's life, it's because they're not saved. And if they're not saved, they're not part of the family of God. And they don't possess one of the attributes of the father of the family, which is eternal life. A striving for holiness, a striving for perfection in, in this flesh, in this body, without an understanding of human nature, without an understanding of the old man, without an understanding of the love of God and the free grace of Christ. If you don't have that, one of two things will be evident. It will make you into a Pharisee. Or if it doesn't make you into a lying Pharisee, it will drive you into depression. It will drive you into overwhelming despair and guilt. All the sin a believer ever does, all the sin that a believer ever can commit, cannot destroy his interest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your self-righteousness, if you sit there and go, man, I every time this church is open, I'm in there. Every time there's a Bible study, I'm at that. Every time I can be at a prayer meeting, I'm there, and boy, aren't I something else. We need to come to remember what Jesus said in Luke 5.32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, the better you feel about yourself, the better you think you are, the further away you are from Christ. That's why Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because I have only one advocate in my sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Constant, continual, doesn't say we had an advocate. It says we have. Christ is now my advocate. He is with the Father. He's not only with Him, He is seated with Him. And so if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. This denial of any specific act of sin. Albert Barnes says, some perhaps might be disposed to say this, as the apostle is careful to guard every point, he here states that if a man should take the ground that his past life had been wholly upright, it would prove that he had no true religion. This is blasphemy, making God a liar. And we can make God a liar in two ways. We can explicitly deny his teaching that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or they can implicitly deny that they need a Savior at all. John MacArthur says, after all, 
why would they need a substitute to take their punishment for something that they claim they never committed? You know, that's one thing about this whole critical race theory thing that we hear. They're, they're going to be attacking Christianity. Because Christianity says you are a sinner and you need a savior. And they say, how dare you? How dare you say that I'm a sinner and I need a savior, otherwise there's consequence. Albert Barnes says, the whole system of Christianity is based on the fact that man is a fallen being. He needs a savior. And unless a man admits that, of course he cannot be a Christian. We see sin throughout the Old Testament and it's described as the most disgusting of things. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as excrement, a decaying corpse, leprous boils, every single thing that you can think that's gross and sick. That's what sin is uh, talked about like. It's all in hyperbole. Sin is filthy to think of, filthy to talk about, filthy to desire, filthy to do. It's utterly detestable and offensive to God, and it contaminates your entire being. I'm not going to leave you on that note. I'm going to leave you with something else. David asked God to make him whiter than snow. Snow is already completely white. How can something be whiter than snow? Here's hyperbole too. The only thing that can describe the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of grace, the beauty of forgiveness is hyperbole. Make me whiter than snow. And he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to honor you this morning by thanking you for your son's death on the cross. We praise him for his great impeccable character. We want to thank him for his continued intercession at your throne on our behalf. And Lord, we long for the day when we will see you face to face. It gets sometimes when we get really deeply into your word, we can almost taste it. We, we think we can almost touch it because your word makes it so clear. But yet, in your wisdom, you're saying not yet, not yet. And so we patiently wait with our hearts full of joy, full of trust, confessing our sin. But Father, we ask that you would spur us to a greater holiness. In light of all these things, we bow before you and worship you in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.